My name is Catherine Tancon. Today we begin a sermon series on the Psalms, beginning with today's reading, the 137th Psalm. Now I have been told that this is a particularly difficult scripture passage for us to be saying together, but Ryan says, trust me, it will make sense with the sermon. So there you go. We will be reading the Psalm together responsively with a sung refrain. Andrew will play through it first, then the choir will sing it, and then the congregation, and follow along. Just follow along. Over to Andrew and the choir. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down to the foundations. O Babylon, you devastator, blessed shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Blessed shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. By the rivers of Hear what the Spirit has said, saying to the church. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Maybe a little bit of a tentative uh, thanks be to God after that particular reading. But uh, here we like to uh, bring our whole selves and we like to struggle with the deepest parts of human experience. And uh, why shy away from scriptures like that? Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer, may your living word be heard and bring us life. Amen. So as Catherine said, 
Today we are beginning a short sermon series on the Psalms, the Psalms being the psalm, songbook or hymn book of the Bible. And today we begin with a psalm that many readers throughout history have thought to be rather disturbing, perhaps one of the most disturbing passages in the entire Bible, because it ends with a graphically brutal call for vengeance, vengeance through the murder of an enemy's young children. And perhaps the most difficult part of this psalm is that it is a song, meaning that it's not simply meant to be read, but it's meant to be sung. It's not meant to be heard, but it's meant to be joined in in voices together. I mean, Voices United, our hymn book actually leaves the last three verses out, and I think is for that reason. I mean, there's plenty of bad and brutal stuff in the Bible, but there's something especially heinous about putting ourselves in the place of the singer and speaking such terrible thoughts and wishes aloud. I mean, Catherine, <laughs> we sacrificed Catherine to do that job <laughs> this week. We know that Catherine has such holiness about her that nothing will, nothing will phase that. Um, but um, <laughs> it just doesn't seem very Christian to speak that way. Um, it doesn't seem very Christian to speak like that at all. It doesn't seem very Christian to participate in a psalm like this one. Having said that, though, I am with, I've been convinced by the great Old Testament scholar who happens to be my son's namesake, Walter Brueggemann, when it comes to these texts. Brueggemann contends that it is a necessity for the church and human experience in general to reappropriate psalms like this one as part of a full Christian spirituality and in order to live our full lives before God. And I'll be honest, I'm more or less just lifting Brueggemann's ideas throughout this sermon. So this is me footnoting myself myself now. And uh, I'm always grateful for Brueggemann's uh, readings of Scripture. Now, first of all, it is important for us to understand where the brutal feelings in this psalm actually come from. The first four verses tell us the story of how we got to the point of murderous rage because they come from somewhere. They come from somewhere. The feeling comes from somewhere. The feelings are rooted in a real historical experience, something that actually happens, happened. The story begins by the rivers of Babylon. The capital of the Babylonian Empire is at the intersection of two mighty rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, and it's known for this huge network of canals. So think of this beautiful, shady, tree-lined riverside, willows, and poplar trees kind of dot the whole side of the river. And as lovely as the scenery is, though, it betrays the deep sadness of those seated on the lush grass. Gathered there under the trees are the temple musicians, the highly skilled singers that led the Jerusalem temple in its sacred liturgies. You know, it's, it's Gregor, it's Kara, it's Andrew, it's the choir. Um, but their eyes are filled with tears. Their eyes are filled with tears as they remember their city. They remember their city and their homes leveled to the ground. 
family members murdered, children torn from their parents, the temple itself reduced to rubble. In fact, the very same thing that had happened to them. Their children had been smashed against rocks. The killing of children was a widespread ancient military tactic in the ancient world. The Babylonians were eliminating the next generation of potential warriors and leaders. So here God's people embrace one another in the loss, trying to bring each other some kind of comfort. And seeing as how they're in Babylon, though, there are some Babylonians around, keeping track of these freshly conquered prisoners as the singers are nursing their deep emotional wounds. One of the guards pipes up, and he's like, hey, hey, he says, enough with the doom and gloom already. Sing us one of the songs of Zion, one of those upbeat joyous temple tunes you guys are famous for. Something with a good old gospel beat. We're tired of this sorrowful sadness. You know, this is mockery on top of brutality. Sort of like, you know, where's your God now? It's adding insult to injury. And seeing as how they're the prisoners of the world's most brutal superpower, you could see them maybe singing a few tunes to avoid punishment, but when the guards leave them alone for the night, they hang up their harps. They hang up their musical instrument on those same willows that line the riverside. And it's just not for storage until the next gig. One common Jewish commentator says that they do this because joy which is synonymous with God's presence, is no longer possible when the temple has been destroyed. Exile, he says, exile is equated with descent into the world of the dead. Like the dead, the exiles are unable to praise God. The 20th century Jewish scholar Theodore Adorno once said after the Nazi Holocaust, To write poetry after Auschwitz is barbarism. To write poetry after Auschwitz is barbarism. And this is kind of like that. They hang up their harps because in the light of their trauma, destruction, and exile, joyous song is no longer possible. God's people have experienced both literal and spiritual death. How could we sing the Lord's song at all at this point? let alone in a strange land like Babylon. The sentiment in the psalm makes perfect sense once you kind of know where it comes from. Few of us, I think, could imagine the kind of trauma that gave it birth, but it still happens. It still happens today. Rwandan genocide, the rise of the Islamic State, these This psalm describes things that actually happened during those times within the last couple of decades. I mean, imagine if it were you. Imagine if it were you. Think of the worst way that you've been wronged. And if you haven't, I mean, thank God for that, but if you have, think about the kind of anger, the kind of resentment that you have felt, the desire to settle the score to make things right but then times 10. If you've been brutalized in the same way, you'd probably feel the same way. You would probably feel the same way 
that the exiles feel. These people are the victims of some of the worst things that human beings do to other people, and their desire for justice and redress is perfectly legitimate. And their desire for vengeance is perfectly understandable. This psalm is important because it tells the truth about some of our worst experiences, and it gives voice to some of our deepest, darkest feelings. Rather than pushing it all down, it tells the truth about the world as it is and as it should be. And as understandable as it is, though, as truthful as the words are, though, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're right or that they're good. Nelson Mandela once said, and apparently he kind of picked this from a bunch of other sources, but lots of people have said this, but he said that hatred is like drinking poison and hoping that it will kill your enemies. Hatred is like poison and hoping that it will kill your enemies. Anyone who's really hated someone knows how hatred distorts us, how it can basically eat up our lives and destroy us from the inside. Not only that, but it never ends the way that we'd hoped. Revenge never fixes the problem. Violence and resentment seem to always just breed more of the same. Abusers were often abused as children. Victims become victimizers and begat more victims. The Bible from the murder of Abel by Cain pictures human history as this giant cycle of descent. How we sin to try to fix sin. I mean, the psalm itself is a testimony, too, to how easy it is to become like those who have harmed us, how easy it is for victims to become like those who victimized them in the first place. Then, of course, there's the fact that Jesus teaches us to love our enemies and to bless those who persecute us and calls us to do the same. It's clear from beginning to end that we shouldn't feel this way. As understanding as our feelings may be, and as truthful as the words are, it doesn't mean that they're right, nor does it mean that they are good. Good for us, or good for God's world. We shouldn't feel this way. We shouldn't feel this way. But the question is, what if we do? Have you ever been really worked up and somebody just told you to relax? <laughs> it worked, right? It worked. Yeah. I didn't think so. <laughs> In the same, same way, have you ever tried to just stop hating your, from yourself from hating someone through sheer willpower? You just stood there and were like, Argh! and how did that work out? Law tells us what to do, but it doesn't have the power to actually do it. The thing is that the anger is real, the injustice and the harm are real too. We shouldn't feel this way, but the fact is we're going to feel this way. And it's going to come out somehow. The question is how it's going to come out. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with our thirst for vengeance? I mean, we can give in to it, and we can act. You know, we can get a gun. And we know how that 
works out all too much, all too recently. And you know, you can do what I like to do, which is you can push it down and avoid it. You can push it down and let it build up until it just suddenly bursts out on your friends or your spouse or your kids. You can do it that way. Or we can follow the model of psalms like this one. We can give it over to God. We can take that which is eating us up inside and we can give it over to God. And this is really where Brueggemann comes in. He says that this is exactly what is happening in these psalms. Lord, I am being eaten up, eaten alive by my grief and anger, and I'd like to hand it off to you. I can't do this myself. I need to give it over to you. He says that parents often know how this works. Two kids are playing in the backyard. One runs in shouting, ah, and has a scratch and a little bit of blood. You put on a Band-Aid and you think that it's taken care of, but suddenly the kid is like, what about him? I won't be happy until you punish him for what he did to me. Might be familiar. But a wise parent doesn't say, you can't talk like that about your brother or your sister, or, you know, relax. <laughs> a wise parent doesn't say, you know, let me write this down so I can do it. <laughs> no, a wise parent says, you know, why don't you leave it with me? Why don't you leave that to me? I have heard you, and I will decide what's to be done about it. This is all Brueggemann, by the way. This isn't me. I'm not that good. Brueggemann's great. And that's what we do when we pray psalms like this one. There's an assumption that there is a higher court of appeal than ourselves or anyone on earth. And we're going to say it later in the Apostles' Creed that we believe that in the end there is one to whom we will all stand before and have to make an account. I mean, the new creed says that Jesus is our judge and our hope. And you know, of course, God's settling of accounts isn't like ours. After all, the creator of heaven and earth experienced his own son being smashed against the rock of crucifixion. And from the cross itself, the Lord himself pronounced forgiveness on and even died for the ones who murdered him. Nonetheless, speaking the truth about us to God doesn't wish our suffering and our pain away. It doesn't pretend, it doesn't downplay it, it doesn't let the evildoers off scot-free, but instead it takes that cup of poison we keep drinking out of our hands and it places it at the throne. It takes the gun out of our hands and puts it at the feet of the cross, at the feet of the Lord, the one who holds the future, the one who made heaven and earth, trusting that justice will be done, not by us, but by the perfect judge, and that everything will be set right in God's good time.
It takes incredible discipline and it takes incredible trust. But because vengeance belongs to God and it doesn't belong to us, well, it frees us. If we know that justice is out of our hands, but in the fullness of time justice will be done, we're freed to get on with living. We're freed to forgive our enemies instead of holding on and giving in to the ways they've hurt us. We're freed to start loving our enemies rather than hating them, where the practice of eliminating your enemy's children was a way to get rid of the next generation of warriors, you could say that rather than have us dealing with vengeance by dashing our children, the children of our enemies against a rock, that in giving our vengeance over to God, he smashes the sin and hatred in us before it has a chance to grow up, before we have the chance to do the same to somebody else. To pray these psalms is an act of trust in God's justice and God's judgment and not our own. That frees us. So, where are you being consumed by hatred? Where have you been hurt or harmed by injustice? The good news is that you don't have to shoulder this burden any longer. You don't have to be torn up inside. No. You can be honest. We can be honest. You can give it over to God. Give it over to the perfect judge, trusting that all has been set right in the fullness of time. Give it to God in prayer. Give it to God with a trusted elder in this congregation or make an appointment to see me. And when you do, you'll find yourself freed, freed from the hatred that binds you, and free to sing the Lord's song again, even in this strange land. For all this, thanks be to God. Amen.
Spirit. 